This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Can we pay attention to anything? It is so hard to protect the future. When we have, right now, a triple pandemic, war splitting the world, economic problems, worries about staying warm or fed, political turmoil, and a lot of unhappy people. But if we want to survive, we have to carry all that and change our lives dramatically to save a livable climate. Who knows if humanity can do it? This program relays important new science about the way this planet works. We learn about the critical sea ice from a long-time expert. Then you get a new look into why the world is becoming a more stormy place and where. My hope, some of you will learn and pass it on. Nobody was taught this key information in school because we did not know it then. We need a thousand thousand ambassadors for climate reality. Don't argue. Teach. North America got early cold and snow this year. The UK and Europe too. Part of it is the Pacific Ocean called La Nina, but there is something else quite unexpected. Loss of Arctic sea ice may already influence weather further south. Maybe in good news, scientists also found a mechanism that may delay complete disappearance of Arctic sea ice. But we can't get into how and why without understanding new science about ice, the ocean, and the atmosphere, and a new paper shows us more. The lead author is Long Lin from the Polar Research Institute of China. We have reached his co-author, Dr. Donald Perovich. Don is a professor of engineering at Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire, USA. Don has chaired the Climate and Cryosphere Arctic Sea Ice Working Group. In addition to his own research and papers, he's co-edited peer-reviewed journals and been funded by NASA in the past. Don Perovich, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much. I'm excited about the opportunity to talk about sea ice. You bet. Well, maybe we don't really understand what it is. What is sea ice? Okay, sea ice, in particular Arctic sea ice, is the frozen ocean at the top of the world. It's so cold in the Arctic that the ocean freezes, forming sea ice. It's a frozen ocean. It's vast in aerial extent, covering millions of square kilometers. But it's really just a thin veneer of ice, only a couple meters thick. And always remember, it's a frozen ocean, so it's floating, and it moves. It moves kilometers per day, driven by winds and by ocean currents. So the ice is actually sliding around on the surface of the ocean uh, up to a mile or more? Uh, More, yes. It can go 10, 15 miles in a day. It's much different than glaciers and ice sheets. So if you were a ship stuck in the sea ice, you might be moving around. Yes, you might be moving in the wrong direction, which has happened to me on occasion. Why do we need a a figure for the mass of sea ice at the pools, and, and why is it so hard to get that number? The Arctic sea ice cover is really important for climate change studies for two reasons. One, it acts as an indicator of climate change, and two, it acts as an amplifier of climate change. So in terms of an indicator, as I just said, it's vast in aerial extent, but just a thin veneer of ice. And so in a warming climate, we would expect there to be less of it. In a cooling climate, we would expect there to be more. And indeed, that's what we see on the seasonal cycle. It expands, covers more area in the winter and less area in the summer. And 
From satellites, we have a record for the past 43 years of the month-by-month extent of the ice cover. And in particular, we look at September, at the end of summer, when the ice reaches its minimum, and any climate change signal would be the easiest to detect. And as an indicator of climate change, the Arctic tells a clear story. In fact, it yells a clear story. There's there's a loss of ice and there's warming. Now, that's how it acts as an indicator. As an amplifier, it can act that way through something called the ice albedo feedback. So if you want, I could take a minute or two to explain that. Well, since that determines how hot it gets around the world, yes, let's hear it. Sure. Well, first of all, the albedo is my favorite geophysical parameter, and it's my favorite for two reasons. First of all, it's simple. The albedo is simply the fraction of sunlight that's coming in that's reflected by a surface. So if we assume, think about a surface that's completely dark and absorbs all the light, its albedo would be zero. Now think about another surface that's incredibly bright and reflects all the light. Its albedo would be one. And trust me, it doesn't get any easier in geophysics than going out, making two measurements, the sunlight coming in, the sunlight reflected, dividing, and knowing ahead of time it's going to be between zero and one. Now, of course, it's not enough just to be simple. The second reason that's my favorite, because it's of critical importance to climate change, to climate in general and climate change, because sunlight is the primary mechanism to warm the earth, and how much of that sunlight is reflected is a key parameter in any climate model. And you specialize in something called sea ice mass balance buoys. What is that? What does it look like, and where are they? Okay, so the sea ice mass balance, it's Another simple parameter, it's just how much the ice grows in the winter and how much it melts in the summer. And importantly, how much it melts on the surface and how much it melts on the bottom. And the mass balance then, it's critical because it allows us to understand how these changes in the ice are occurring, whether or not we're getting more melting on the surface, which means the atmosphere is playing a role, or more melting on the bottom, which means the ocean is playing a role. And if you're in the field, it's an easy thing to measure, but there aren't that many opportunities. So we've developed the next best thing to being there, autonomous sea ice mass balance buoys. We've been deploying those for the past 25 years, uh, and during that time, the design of the buoys has evolved, and the current buoy is something we call the seasonal ice mass balance buoy. It's a buoy that's 14 feet long, around 4 inches in diameter, so it's a long, skinny buoy. And much of it was developed by two graduate students here and um, at there, and who have since started their own company after graduation. And some of the buoy is highly sophisticated. There's custom design, printed circuit boards, a lot of programming goes into it. But part of it is kind of low-key. It's made out of PVC pipe, the same thing you use for plumbing, and it's powered by 120 alkaline D-cells. What this buoy does, though, it has a string of temperature sensors spaced every two centimeters down the whole length of the buoy, plus it has acoustic sensors to keep track of the position of the surface and the position of the bottom of the ice. 
it also has a barometer uh, device to measure air temperature, and the best part is it sends the data back to us via Iridium. Just this morning before uh, we talked, I looked, and it's uh, minus 15 centigrade at one of our buoys that's at 78 degrees north. Uh, all of our data is made available within minutes of the observation on a website, and we deploy these buoys wherever we can across the Arctic. We have a long time series of deploying buoys in an area called the Beaufort Sea. It's the part of the Arctic Ocean that's just north of uh, Alaska. And we also have been able to deploy a number in the vicinity of the North Pole. You know, I see the sea ice like a room divider between the ocean and the atmosphere, and both of those systems are turbulent, they're full of currents. How do you see the role of ice between the ocean and the atmosphere? Is it like a translator? I think it's more like the room divider. I view it as a barrier because sea ice really limits the contact between the atmosphere and the ocean. It limits the amount of heat that can be transferred between the two. It limits the amount of moisture that can be exchanged between the two. And also it limits the amount of momentum. So it really is a barrier between the ocean and the atmosphere. And compared to the ocean or the atmosphere, sea ice is pretty thin. How thick does it get? And did you find different action at the top compared to the bottom of the ice? Yeah, the sea ice is highly variable. Over a distance of just, say, your living room at home, you could find some open ocean with just a thin cover of a few centimeters of sea ice, or you could have a pressure ridge uh, where the ice plates, again, it's floating, it's moving. They can collide and basically form mountain ranges of ice. And those uh, sea ice ridges can be tens of meters thick. On average, if we just look at how the ice isn't deforming, it's just growing, on average, it's anywhere between one and three meters thick, typically. Uh, In terms of what we've seen, there's a lot of variability in uh, melting uh, on the surface and the bottom. And depending where you are, there can be large differences. I think one of the big surprises that I've seen over the years looking at results from the buoys is in this area of the Beaufort Sea, there's been a large increase in the amount of bottom melting. The amount of surface melting has also increased, uh, maybe by 50%, whereas the bottom melting is now a couple times bigger than it used to be. And that makes us focus on increased heat in the ocean. Well, that's interesting because we can't see that from a satellite and and wouldn't know about it except for the kind of research that you do. And it it indicates maybe there's more ice melt than we've been thinking. Yeah. For the past, as I mentioned earlier, for the past 43 years or so, we've had real good observations of the extent of the ice cover. So we see how much area it covers. But it's only been the past decade or so where we've had a good idea of how thick the ice is. And that's ultimately what we're after. What's the total volume of the ice? And we see that that's also decreasing as well. And I think what the mass balance buoy measurements give us is it shows us how it's changing. You know, it's showing us the relative impact of changes in the surface to changes in the bottom. And what is the significance of timing of when the ice melts in the Arctic and when it starts to freeze again? Timing can be everything. If we were, instead of sitting wherever we are, if we were in an aircraft 
flying north from Alaska towards the North Pole, and it was April, and we looked down at the surface, it would be bright and it's white. It's sea ice covered by snow. Now, as we go from spring and April into the summer melt season, we get more melting, which decreases the albedo and makes the surface darker, and that kicks off the ice albedo feedback. Snow melts, the surface gets darker. Ice melts, it gets darker still. More heat's absorbed, there's more melting. And when that process starts is critical because there's also the seasonal cycle of the sun. We have the most incident sunlight in May and early, late May and early June. And so if the ice is still covered by snow, it's reflecting 85% of the sunlight. If, though, we've already begun to melt, we can have melting snow, which only reflects 70%, melting ice, which only reflects 65%, and open ocean, which only reflects 10%. So the timing of the onset of melt is really critical to the total amount of heat that goes into the system. And when you change that beginning of melt, that impact carries through the, out the entire summer. We hear concern that thicker multi-year ice is being replaced by thinner seasonal cover. Is that happening, and is it a worry? Yes and yes. If we look at, again, sea ice is relatively young. There's what's called seasonal ice. It's ice that just started growing that year. If that seasonal ice makes it through a summer, it graduates into becoming multi-year ice, and it can last more and more years. And in general, the older the ice is, the thicker it is. And the thicker the ice is, the more resilient it is. You know, think of it this way. If you have a piece of thin ice and you just have a summer that for whatever reason is warm, that could be enough to melt that ice completely. Whereas if you have the thicker, older ice, it can survive a warm summer and still be there in the fall. In terms of the changes we've seen, Back in 1984, around 60% of the ice cover was multi-year. And even more so, if we look at the oldest ice, the ice that's more than four years old, back then, roughly 30% of the ice cover was this old thick ice. And that instead of 30%, if we look to 2021, that's reduced to 3.5%, almost a factor of 10 decrease. Even with the multi-year ice, that's decreased from 60% to 30%. It's been cut in half. So there have been major losses in this old ice, which in general makes the ice cover much less resilient. Scientists were blown away when the sea ice retreated rather suddenly in 2007, and it hasn't come back to its former levels in the summer. And something must have changed the whole system up there. Do we really know why the cryosphere can cruise along in one state for centuries and then retreat precipitously? Well, I mean, I still remember 2007. I mean, it was a major shock to the sea ice community. I mean, we knew that sea ice was decreasing, but 2007 was the record September minimum ice extent, and even more so was set by a record minimum amount. And since then... The September ice extends. Some years it's up a little. Some years it's down a little. 2012 set another record low. But the key factor is it's never gone back to the levels before 2007. It's as though the ice shifted into a different state. Now, there's a real interesting wrinkle to this, that in 2006, 
a year before any of this happened, there was a paper published based on climate model results showing that sea ice could behave in this matter. You could have these rapid ice loss events uh, that would cause a sharp decrease in the ice extent. And sure enough, that's what happened. And it's a combination of things. It's not just one factor that's driving this. You start off by having an ice cover that's less resilient because it's younger. And you have, for the case of 2007, you had some warm air masses over the Arctic. You had some sunny skies. Uh, you had more open water, which absorbed heat, and that heat went to melting the ice on the bottom and on the sides of the ice. You put all that together, and you're in a new state. Late up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Don Perovich, Professor of Engineering at Dartmouth. We are talking about the new paper, Changes in the Annual Sea Ice Freeze-Thaw Cycle in the Arctic Ocean from 2001 to 2018. There have been many predictions about when Arctic sea ice will disappear in the summer, and some scientists say it could happen in the next decade, maybe. Uh, what is your understanding of why a difference in freezing from the top of the ice to the bottom could slow down that loss? What is regulating it? Yeah, I mentioned earlier the positive feedback, the ice albedo feedback that kind of accelerates ice loss. There are some breaks on the system, and one break is that thin ice can grow really quickly. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, if we think of the ice as a barrier between the ocean and the atmosphere, well, to grow ice, we have to extract heat from the ocean to the atmosphere. And the thicker the ice is, the harder it is to extract that heat. And so if we start off with thinner ice, that ice will grow more rapidly. So it acts to slow these changes down. It's not a strong enough feedback to reverse the changes, but it does temper the effect of it. Do you personally think a loss of sea ice, even in the summer, could change the atmosphere and thereby alter weather in the northern hemisphere? Well, let me start off with a little um, caveat. I'm not an atmospheric scientist, so this is just more of a personal opinion than a profound scientific insight. I have listened to a lot of presentations. This is an area that's a very active research area now for atmospheric scientists. Personally, as a sea ice person, I do think that there can be uh, a connection. You know, how strong the connection is, I don't know. You mentioned in your introduction the effect of La Nina showing how a change in temperature of a blob of water in the Pacific can impact our weather. Well, in a similar fashion, it's not unreasonable to think that going from an ice-covered ocean to an open water ocean could have an impact on our weather here as well. Well, you do specialize in the interaction of sunlight with ice and snow. Would you talk to us about that more? Sure. Uh, I like to follow the photons. Uh, if we look at sunlight, it comes into the ice cover, and three things can happen to it. It can be reflected back to the atmosphere, it can be absorbed in the ice, or it can be transmitted into the ocean. And how that sunlight is partitioned has a major impact on the mass balance of the ice. There's a direct connection between sunlight and the mass balance. If it's absorbed 
in the ice, you'll get more melting, primarily on the surface. If it's transmitted to the ocean, then there's heat in the ocean, and that heat can melt ice on the bottom of the ice, and it can also be stored in the ocean and slow down freeze-up in the fall. And that's the interaction of sunlight from the perspective of mass balance. There's also another important component to it, and that's in terms of primary productivity. Ice algae blooms at the underside of the ice or phytoplankton blooms in the upper ocean. The primary productivity needs two things, nutrients and sunlight. And as the ice cover thins and as melt starts earlier, we're reaching a state where there's enough light being transmitted through the ice that these blooms in the ocean, the phytoplankton blooms in the ocean, can start even in the presence of an ice cover which can have impacts on the entire food web. Yeah, that's a big development. Another big development, I'm sure you saw this, was the DNA analysis from at least a couple of million years ago showing mastodons and other creatures at the northern end of Greenland when it was completely ice-free. And I believe that that science showed that it was the Earth tilting towards the sun that caused that giant melt, and that would follow just what you've been talking about, really. Yeah, uh, I mean, in addition, even before there were any humans, there were there climate cycles, uh, solar cycles, depending on the precession of the Earth's axis and, and other factors as well. These days, a lot of scientific papers say we need to fund research to keep track of one system or another. It, it could be deforestation or algae. Why does your team call for more monitoring of the Arctic sea ice where no one really lives? I think there's a number of reasons, as we talked about in terms of the impact on North American climate. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. But even beyond that, there are impacts today to people living in the Arctic. Quite a few people live there. There's impacts on coastal communities. It's more than an intellectual exercise trying to understand what's going on. We need to understand the impacts on people. Years ago, if somebody posed the question, who owned the Arctic Ocean, the answer would probably be, who cares, it's covered with ice. But as that ice retreats, it opens up a lot of other issues. The Arctic Ocean has large continental shelves that have resources in them. Uh, so there's natural resource extraction possibilities. There's also, as the ice retreats, there are shipping routes, shortcuts across the top of the world. There's also geopolitical uh, issues in terms of you know, who's going to be operating in the Arctic and what the rules of engagement will be. Uh, I think there's just a number of reasons that, and it also, in a sense, is the refrigerator for, you know, the poles are the refrigerator for the planet. And as those refrigerators stop working as well, it'll have global implications. Are we getting new scientists to train on ice and snow, or will the field shrink away with the ice? Well, I worry a lot about the ice shrinking away. I don't worry at all about the number of scientists shrinking away. There are just an increasing number of superb young scientists getting involved in sea ice. I'm currently involved in a project called Mosaic. It's the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. Big mouthful. And the centerpiece of Mosaic was a year-long drift uh, aboard an icebreaker in the Arctic Ocean. And there was a huge turnout of early career scientists on that. So I'm really very pleased with the, the future of sea ice research. 
And as we discussed in email, Dawn, a wave of valuable new science is coming through researchers in China. The government there is funding climate research, and the results are showing up. How does that collaboration work in a paper like the one you just published? In this paper, it's interesting because some of the co-authors I've never met in person, that the idea for this came from the first two authors, and they contacted me because of, you know, the ice mass balance buoys are an important component of the paper, and I'm familiar with them. And so we did a lot of things via email, and I'm actually looking forward. I may have a chance to meet them at a meeting in February. So I think if you look at this paper, it's illustrative of the direction of sea ice research, that it's highly collaborative with international teams, and it looks at the synthesis of data from a number of different sources. And you also specialize in something, sea ice geophysics. What is that? It's basically, when I look at sea ice, I take a physical approach to it, uh, like when I'm following photons looking at the interaction of sunlight with sea ice, I do rate of transfer modeling, the same sorts of modeling they do in stellar interiors. When I you know, look at ice melting, I'm using the same sort of physics that you would look use in the thermodynamics course. And I got my degree in geophysics, so I always put that on. You've been in the ice and snow game for almost four decades, I think. Uh, has there been a striking change in what we know about the Arctic now versus the 1990s? What assumptions have fallen by the wayside? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been a big difference. My very first trip to do sea ice observations was uh, in 1979 as a grad student. And for probably the first 15 years or so of my career, we were doing sea ice research because the Arctic was an ocean and we were interested in the properties of that ocean and the properties of the ice. Uh, and it wasn't till the late 90s that any kind of climate change element came. Uh, the first time for me at least, that climate change came into the picture was for a program called SHEBA, the surface heat budget of the Arctic Ocean, where we froze an icebreaker into the ice from October 1997 to October 1998. And the motivation of that was to understand the ice albedo and cloud radiation feedback mechanisms and use that to improve models. It wasn't to go out and detect climate change or anything. It was just to improve, you know, climate models. And since then, there's been a major, you know, focus on what's the impact of climate. One of the things is that a lot of the work we did earlier was focused on this older multi-year ice because that was the dominant ice type. And now, you know, we find that that's not the dominant ice pack. So there's been a real shift in the focus of our research to look at the seasonal ice. The Mosaic project that I mentioned earlier, there the science questions was what are the causes and consequences of an ice-diminished Arctic Ocean? So I think the, the focus of our research is, has really changed. I've been lucky that I've been able to study sea ice for a long time and see how it changed. And I think one of the big differences has been the fact that the societal relevance of these changes. Early on, it was fascinating to study sea ice. You know, the societal relevance was somewhat small, but now it, it really is of significance. 
Can you think of many other scientists who've been on studying sea ice as long as you have? A couple, but I think my generation is starting to fade out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like at the end of the Lord of the Rings, we get on those ships and sail away. <laughs> well, hopefully you won't be stuck in the Arctic for a year. Yeah. <laughs> did did they have a crew that just had to stay on that ship uh, for the year, or did they replace people? Uh, no, like for the earlier experiment that I mentioned, the Sheba experiment, we pretty much had a rotation every six weeks. Mm-hmm. And for the Mosaic experiment, there the schedule was to have a rotation every two months. It went like clockwork until the April rotation. The rotation in April of 2020, just as COVID was hitting the world. So that group got some extra time on the ice, which probably was the safest place on the planet. We've been speaking with Professor Don Perovich from Dartmouth Engineering, and you can find more about this paper in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Don, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to talk about sea ice. I really enjoyed it. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Early winter storms rocked North America and Europe, too. Network news has become a weathercast, reporting waves of extreme events. But is the world really becoming a stormier place? Dr. Tiffany Shaw and her team investigated, just releasing their new paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy. At the University of Chicago, Tiffany is professor in the Department of Geophysical Sciences. She gained her doctorate in physics at the University of Toronto, Dr. Shaw has led or co-authored over 50 peer-reviewed papers, many of them examining Earth energy systems. Tiffany Shaw, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, Alex. Uh, Thank you for having me. To begin with, your paper intrudes on a couple of common misconceptions. First, now that Earth is warming, is the Northern Hemisphere becoming more stormy? So in our recent paper, we examined changes in storminess over the last several decades using the best available observations. And our work has shown that in the Southern Hemisphere, there is a clear signal that the Southern storminess has increased, whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, there has been no significant change. Okay, and I've heard that a decrease in sea ice and the snow on the land could affect storms in the Northern Hemisphere. Is that true, and how would that operate? So indeed, decades of research show that storms derive their energy from the difference in static energy, such as internal potential and latent between the equator and the pole. They essentially convert this energy stored into the kinetic energy of motion. And so when we talk about the storminess, we're really interested in connecting changes in storminess to changes that are occurring uh, differently at the poles uh, relative to the equator. So our analysis of northern hemisphere storminess clearly showed that the loss of sea ice in the Arctic and the loss of snow over northern hemisphere continents was impacting the sunlight absorbed uh, over that polar region. And this in and of itself would uh, suggest a weakening of storminess. But importantly, we found that this effect was being offset by changes 
in the way that the ocean uh, moves energy around. How can you tell the southern hemisphere has become more stormy and since when? So we use the best available uh, data in our study. And since the southern hemisphere is mostly ocean, it's really only been since satellite-based uh, global observing started in the 1980s that we can you know, truly quantify storminess across the southern hemisphere. So we used the best available observational products to get that storminess data, essentially measuring the kinetic energy across the southern hemisphere outside the tropics and showed that over the last 40 years or so that the storminess has increased. Well, that sounds bad for Australia, which almost drowned this year, and the Philippines has been wracked by typhoons in recent years, very destructive ones. Why do more storms across the Great Southern Ocean, though? Why, why would they matter to Russians or people in Britain or New England? So indeed, only 20% of Earth's uh, land is contained in the Southern Hemisphere, but the signals that we're looking at are connected through additional work from climate models to the global changes expected under the emissions of carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. And that burning of fossil fuels is predominantly, you know, due to uh, Western industrialized nations that are uh, occurred that exist in the North. And so climate change is a, a global signal. We're seeing the manifestations in this Southern storminess. Um, but again, this is connected globally to emissions that are dominated uh, in the North. Are we talking about more storms or more extreme storms or both? So in our analysis, we focused on, let's call it the mean, the average storminess in the annual mean, so across all seasons. And an active um, area of research is how this increase of storminess you know, may be related to the most extreme storms. And that's active um, area of research. And you find in the satellite records, the Southern Hemisphere has become even more stormy. Can we say, Tiffany Shaw, that that is due to climate change? So the question uh, about climate change cannot be answered uh, with observations alone. We use climate models, physics-based climate models, to understand um, the climate change contribution. And in our work, we combined those observational changes with forecasts from climate change models, from physics-based models of climate change. And what our analysis shows is that those models are also, you know, showing a signal of increased storminess, something that has been predicted for very long now, since the 1970s, that the storminess would increase, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. So given these multiple lines of evidence, you know, the signals are pointing toward this as being part of the climate change response. If the global south becomes even stormier, and if global warming is a driver, that could be a further case of injustice of climate impacts, and it, it may bear on the need for reparations from industrialized countries, as discussed just at COP27 in Egypt. Does this new research shed further light on that? So this, further, this research 
is contributing to a line of evidence connecting the signals of climate change forecast from physics-based models to what we are observing in our observational systems. The important questions of who should be paying for climate change adaptation um, are going to be answered and, and will require the kind of information we're providing. But these are you know, very important ongoing these are questions that are, are, are being discussed as seen in the COP27. So I think we're providing additional information, but, you know, the answers will, will require, you know, certainly more discussion. It sounds from the paper like there's a great tide of energy moving from the southern to the northern hemisphere. How can that continue without getting out of balance? Could you talk to us about the energy balance between the Earth's two hemispheres? So, yeah, the one of the important questions in our paper was why is the southern hemisphere stormier to begin with? So even just putting aside the changes of storminess. And in order to uncover this, we thought carefully about ideas that had been circulated, but also our own hypotheses built on, in some cases on previous studies. And so what we did was we, you know, relied on our theoretical understanding of where the storms are drawing their energy from. And as I've already mentioned, that is the difference uh, in static energy between the equator and the pole. And once we performed this uh, analysis with observations, it really pointed to two important factors that are breaking hemispheric symmetry. So where one hemisphere is different than the other. The first, which was known from previous work by Professor Manabi, who was awarded part of the Nobel Prize in 2021 for reliably predicting global warming, and that is that there is a lot more topography, large mountain ranges in the north. And this, in his work, was shown to be important uh, for shaping storminess in the north. In particular, with the mountains, the northern hemisphere is less stormy. So that was one contributing factor we were able to confirm in our subsequent work using hypothesis tests of using climate models. The other important contributing factor to why the hemispheres are not the same is what we call the ocean circulation. And one way to think about the ocean circulation is it's a very powerful conveyor belt. Ocean water sinks in the Arctic. It travels along the bottom of the ocean rises near Antarctica, and then flows up near the surface, carrying energy with it. And this creates an energy difference between the two hemispheres. Energy is moved away from the region around Antarctica, and it's moved into the region of the Arctic. We call this a northward energy transport, and that means that there will be a difference in the energy contrast um, between the equator and the pole for these um, two hemispheres. And so it was really on revealing these differences um, and confirming their importance, not by just looking at observations, but also by using climate models where we can, you know, remove different factors and test their importance that through this multiple lines of evidence, we were able, you know, to provide, I think, the first convincing explanation for why the southern hemisphere is stormier than the northern hemisphere. That does make sense. And a lot of this depends on relationships between the ocean and the atmosphere, and they're not as separate as they appear. Can we say the ocean shapes flows of energy in the atmosphere, or is it the other way around? So indeed, the ocean and the atmosphere are coupled. 
um, there are many important problems that are going in um, to better understanding that interaction. In our work, we found when we changed the ocean circulation so as to remove this conveyor belt, the atmosphere responded um, by reducing the storminess asymmetry between the hemispheres. Now, there's a converse type of problem that one could envision, which is to change the atmosphere and, and see how that affects the ocean. And indeed, when uh, we look in the literature, there has been work that has, for example, flattened mountains to examine their role on the ocean. And what was found there that there was an impact on the ocean conveyor belt, but it was a much smaller effect than we found in ours. When we changed the ocean, the atmosphere responded um, on the order of 10%. It became 10% less different between the hemispheres, whereas um, in the paper where they flattened the the topography that affected the atmosphere that then could feed back on the ocean, the effect was, you know, less than that on the order of less than 5%. So one needs to be very, needs to very carefully examine these interactions because they are two-way. I want to go back to the point about the sea ice and northern weather, because we have a lot of listeners who do track the northern sea ice. And in this paper, we find this, quote, in the northern hemisphere, storminess has not changed significantly, consistent with oceanic and radiative increased absorption of sunlight due to the loss of sea ice and snow, changes opposing one another, end quote. Tiffany, does that mean less ice and snow in the Arctic has somewhat calmed storms further south, actually stalled off an impact of climate warming for the industrialized countries in the north? So again, we... Um... We always want to have multiple lines of evidence. Our results are connecting some dots between the changes uh, in the Arctic sea ice and the snow over the continents. But there are many papers in the literature that have made these connections before us. So indeed, the expectation is as you melt Arctic sea ice and as you lose uh, snow over the continents, the expectation, not only from modeling evidence, but theoretical um, ideas is that we will exhibit, there will be weaker storminess. Um, and so that's what we were able to find as well. But again, this factor of weakening from the snow and ice was being offset by changes that we were seeing um, in the ocean that were offsetting it. And what does this increase in storminess observed in satellite data, what does it mean for the people in the Philippines, Australia and New Zealand going forward? So storms um, and storminess in general are these sort of low pressure systems that have fronts that bring extreme winds and temperature and rainfall changes. And so as we see a trend toward increasing storminess, we expect that these um, things that go along with the storms will increase. Of course, I've already mentioned it's an open question that is an active area of research as to whether the extreme events in the Southern Hemisphere have also been trending upward. And what about Southern Africa and South America? I don't recall much news about big storms striking South America. I know a few years back it was big news when a hurricane actually came out of the Atlantic and struck Brazil. Is that just a lack of news reporting or is there an exception, uh, say, for South America? I, I say I would say I can't fully answer that question. I mean, I think there is a bias in reporting that you know one could try to quantify, uh, but it's also important I think to say that these types of storms that I am talking about are not the same um, as hurricanes or what we call tropical cyclones. 
Um, the storms that I'm talking about are outside the tropics, and they derive their energy from the contrast between the equator and the pole. It's, of course, um, a different form of energy that's important for tropical cyclones and hurricanes, and that is just the latent energy or the temperature and evaporation that goes with it from the sea surface. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. Our guest is scientist Tiffany Shaw. We're talking about a paper on storms published in PNAS. It was edited by the American scientist Michael Mann. Getting back to what you talked about, topography, the the impulse of the land in storms. And obviously, there's a lot more land in the northern hemisphere. Some of it goes up to 14,000 feet or 4,400 meters right into the sky. How do land formations change storm systems in the atmosphere? So the large mountain ranges um, can be thought of as, you know, disrupting the way the way that air flows around them and, and that in in and of itself reduces the storms. One way to think about it is that the atmosphere, you know, exhibits different types of kinetic energy. The atmosphere organizes its fluid motions into different types of kinetic energy, and the storms represent that type of kinetic energy that, you know, is bringing the low-pressure systems with their with their fronts. Whereas when air flows over topography, it creates a kind of standing wave pattern. Uh, that, you know, is a consequence of that topography. And so when you have more energy going into the flow over topography, one can think about it as taking away energy from the storms, which are a different kind of, of motion in the atmosphere. Does that imply the northern hemisphere is less stormy than the south simply because of land formations interrupting the flow of the atmosphere? So in our study, we carefully designed climate model experiments that are the only way that you can truly quantify the impact of topography. You can't put the earth in a jar uh, and study it as we would like to if we were laboratory scientists. So in the field of climate dynamics, which is the field that I am I am in, we use numerical simulations of the earth's climate based on the laws of physics. And this allows us a way to, for example, remove the effect of the mountains, in particular flattening them, and show that when those mountains are flattened, that the storminess in the north indeed gets stronger. In the northern hemisphere, we know to look for hurricanes along the ocean coast. Talk to us about where the storms tend to form in the southern hemisphere. So there are indeed storms in the southern hemisphere, and they are not um, localized like they are in the north. They occur all across the southern ocean. Indeed, most of the southern hemisphere is ocean, up to 80%. So these storms encircle the entire southern hemisphere over the southern ocean, right around all longitudes. I'm kind of a sailing fan, and I've seen several videos of the, the roaring 40s, the southern ocean being one of the most feared for sailors to go through. Yeah, indeed. The Southern Ocean is famed for its incredibly high wave heights. Ocean waves there can reach an astounding 78 feet. We just had a cruise ship uh, have its windows knocked out by a a rogue wave uh, as it was coming back from Antarctica. Indeed, and this is not unrelated to the questions in our paper. We were interested in the storminess which goes along with these very extreme surface winds and waves. 
Two Chinese scientists just published a study finding even weak tropical cyclones have grown more intense. And that caught my eye after seeing a relatively weak Cat 1 Hurricane Nicole, barely above a tropical cyclone, yet it did so much damage to Florida and up the East Coast. After your study on storms, what do you think about that? So that type of storm, as I mentioned before, is a so-called tropical cyclone that forms near the equator in the tropics and derives its energy from latent energy, which is to do with evaporation of water from the sea surface. Now, those storms can exhibit what we call a transition to the type of storms that we examine in our study, so-called extratropical storms. And so there's really a lot of open questions about how these you know, tropical cyclones will change and potentially transition more frequently. Uh, but that's all very much an active area of research at this point. So what can this study imply about how stormy the world was in the last big ice age or even earlier times of warming? Yeah, so the value of our work is to lay a foundation of understanding of the important factors that control storminess. And once we lay that theoretical foundation, it opens the door for us to think about paleoclimate or times in the past, such as the last glacial maximum or past warm climates and how storminess, you know, might have been different. And so in each case, one can think about for the last glacial maximum, the fact that there were, you know, there was a lot more ice and snow over the continents and that the topography there also was a lot larger because the ice sheets, you know, were quite high. Our ability now with this underlying theoretical understanding is to think through the impacts of these different effects. For example, having more topography because of the large ice sheets would tend, you know, to lead to a weakening of storminess, as we've found. But there's also, of course, a role of changes in the ocean. And those can indeed potentially offset as we see today. And so there's, you know, an active area of science that is called paleoclimate, where they look for proxies of storminess to quantify as best they can what storminess was like back in the in, in different times of Earth's past. And, you know, we use that in combination with our theoretical understanding to, you know, have a, a picture and an understanding overall of what storminess um, has been like. And this is very helpful for giving us confidence in our understanding of how storminess will change in the future. I know James Hansen was very interested in that. He talked about giant boulders in the Bahamas that have been driven up possibly by storms larger than we see today, and he worried that we might see them in the future. What does your paper help us when we try to look for how the future will look, say, in the year 2100 or beyond? So indeed, it, it lays out a number of physical factors that we should think about when um, considering how storms will change. And there's been a lot of careful work already that has used physics-based climate change forecasts to quantify what the forecast looks like. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the forecast is for a stormier southern hemisphere, just as we've um, noted in our recent paper for the you know, satellite era since the 19, 1980s. And some of the factors that we think are going to continue to play an important role as we move into the future is that 
There's going to be more energy for these storms in the form of latent energy because, you know, warmer air holds more moisture. And so that's something, you know, we're continuing to examine in the observations and the models are not perfect. Uh, they are underestimating some of the signals, as we noted in our paper, and it's really important that they get the right answer for the right reasons. So that's, you know, part of a major thread in my research is to continue to examine the models and make sure they're giving us good information. And your doctorate is in physics. Why do we need physics to understand climate change? So physics provides us with the laws for, you know, why the air moves, the conservation of momentum, Newton's second law. Um, when we bring these physical laws to bear uh, on the Earth's climate, we are able to make predictions. You know, that's the basis of any forecast is a physical understanding of the mechanisms that operate and control the behaviors of the climate. So that is the basis of our ability to forecast climate by the end of the century, 2100. And so these are really important tools in our toolkit for helping to inform society about the impacts of climate change. As we wrap this up, what are you working on these days, Tiffany? So as I just mentioned, a major thread in my research, which also underlies this paper, is to understand if the forecasts from physics-based models are giving us good information. Uh, and I, I do that by combining not only my theoretical understanding of the climate system, but also the observations and the models so that we can trust what they say about the future. And the stakes are really high. So it's not only important to get an answer through the forecast, but also to get the right answer for the right reason. From the University of Chicago, we've been speaking with professor and longtime researcher Tiffany Shaw. Find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The paper is available free. It's open access. Google the title, Stormier Southern Hemisphere Induced by Topography and Ocean Circulation. Tiffany, we really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, for having me. I'm Alex Smith, reporting for Radio EcoShock. In that interview, Tiffany mentioned Sukuro Manabe, who shared the 2021 Nobel Prize in Physics for the physical modeling of Earth's climate, quantifying variability, and reliably predicting global warming. As the Nobel citation says, Sukuro Manabe demonstrated how increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere led to increased temperatures at the surface of the Earth. In the 1960s, he led the development of physical models of Earth's climate and was the first person to explore the interaction between radiation balance and the vertical transport of air masses. His work laid the foundation for the development of current climate models. It's good to remember who got us here. Strange weather continues in many parts of the world. China, which stayed hot for months, recently dropped 16 degrees C into bitter cold. According to Jim Yang, it was the strongest cold wave in November since 1987, and its comprehensive intensity ranked the fourth since 1961. I say all the coal burners in China are cranking up, creating dangerous pollution. That is happening in Europe this winter, too, due to the cutoff of Russian gas. There is a thick smoke over Poland, with some people reported digging for coal in their backyards to keep warm this winter. 
One expert predicted an extra 1,500 premature deaths in Poland just because of coal smoke this winter. Germany bought more coal from South Africa. The war has led to a great leap backward in dirty fossil fuels. We will all pay for that. Strong winter storms sweep over North America like a procession. And then there's the place formerly known as Barrow on the northern point of Alaska. They just got their hottest day ever recorded for the winter. That's November through March. It was 40 degrees C or 4.4 C. That is another winter heat record with the hottest years yet to come. Australia is sizzling, of course, hitting 46 degrees C in the northwest pretty early in the season for that. The Australian Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO just released their 2022 State of the Climate Report. They calculate CO2 equivalent is now 516 parts per million. That is almost double pre-industrial levels, which were around 178 or 180. That is how high the global warming gases really are when we include methane, nitrous oxide, and a whole slew of highly potent chlorinated chemicals that we put up there. The doubling. Here we are. Reports to the Intergovernmental Panel, as you know, include a number of different pathways, from an unreal 1.5 degree scenario up to a mistakenly low 3 degrees C. Reading the Australian report, Canada's Dr. Peter Carter says we are enacting the insane suicide scenario. According to New Scientist, a 48,500-year-old virus has been revived from Siberian permafrost. Seven viruses from the Siberian permafrost have been revived and replicated themselves in the lab, including the oldest revived so far, end quote from New Scientist. Permafrost is thawing across Russia, Canada, and Alaska. It is stuffed with organic life forms, some of which can survive very long times. A number of scientists have called for closer monitoring before a surprise virus or bacteria joins the modern age for the first time. What are we supposed to do with all this worrying information? Aside from obvious retreat from fossil power and destruction of nature generally, we can change minds. I know too many people don't want to hear the bad news from the climate front. They're shut down. They also don't want a heat wave lasting months, coasts washed away, and wildfires roaring down the hills. I forgot the flash flooding, the years-long droughts for others, and a thousand other losses from insects to beasts that we love. Don't argue. Teach. Pass this on. The more clearly we can focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for destruction. <laughs> 